When George Armstrong Custer went into battle for the last time, he had under his command 31 officers, 586 enlisted men, 33 American Indian scouts, and 20 civilian employees. And when the dust finally settled on June 25, 1876, when the final war cry was but a mere echo, over 260 of them were dead, including Custer. The opposition, a combined force of Lakota, Arapaho, and Cheyenne, suffered far less casualties, as few as 31 dead and possibly a little over 100 wounded. It was a slaughter, a massacre, but there were survivors. One such man that comes to mind went by the name of Frank Finkel. He stated that early in the battle, both he and his horse were shot and that the wounded animal took flight with him still in the saddle. A couple of days later, the sergeant of C Company continued on foot, leaving his dying horse behind before finding refuge at a cabin. Nursed to health over the course of a few months, Finkel put the entire ordeal behind him, only coming out and making his claims later in life. Now, not everybody buys Finkel's story, myself included. Truth is, I don't know enough about him either way to pass judgment. But don't you worry, I do plan on doing a full episode solely on Frank Finkel soon. Just not today. Now, today I'm going to discuss two other veterans of the Battle of Little Bighorn. One from each side. Survivors that you may have never heard of, but after today, you'll never be able to forget. So relax, make yourself comfortable. Maybe loosen your belt and take your pants off. I don't know, let's just get weird. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. He was an eight-year veteran of the United States Army and the fight there at the Little Bighorn wasn't his first engagement. No, this grizzled warrior was first wounded riding into battle against the Comanche back in 68, under Keogh. And in just the battle of Little Bighorn alone, he was shot over seven times, and yet he lived. As you can imagine, things did get a mite hairy for a bit. Once discovered, the veteran was rushed, via steamer, to Fort Lincoln in present-day North Dakota. And so extreme were his wounds, they'd stay there for an entire year, slowly recovering. And so impressed was the military by this survivor's service and bravery that the 7th Cavalry issued an official order stating in part, quote, Being the only living representative of the bloody tragedy of the Little Bighorn, his kind treatment and comfort shall be a matter of special pride and solicitude on the part of every member of the 7th Cavalry, to the end that his life be preserved to the utmost limit. Wounded and scarred as he is, his very existence speaks in terms more eloquent than words of the desperate struggle against overwhelming numbers of the hopeless conflict and the heroic manner in which all went down on that fatal day. End quote. And for the rest of his enlistment, this survivor was made as comfortable as possible, not subjected to any sort of detail nor work of any kind. And it didn't stop there. Once finally officially retired in April of 1878, the Survivor embarked on a life of luxury that would last for the next 13 years. He'd make the rounds, first visiting Fort Meade and then Fort Riley, Kansas, where he was ceremoniously named the second commanding officer of the entire 7th Cav. Not an official title, of course, but it was an honor, nonetheless, and ensured the survivor's participation in the occasional parade where he'd drink his share of strong beer with other enlisted men. Finally, in 1891, there in Kansas, where he was first wounded in service to his country, the survivor passed, sent away with full military honors. And I think that's right. I'm the type of guy that, although I hate war and I despise the politicians who send our young men to die for their pocketbooks, I love our fighting men. I'll get chills watching a 21-gun salute. 
I don't know. I just think it's right that we honor these veterans. That said, there's another survivor of the Little Bighorn that didn't quite get the honor of this trooper I just mentioned. And to be fair, he was on the opposing side. But just hear me out on this. Not only do I hope that you'll find this interesting, but I think when I'm done, you will, like me, think maybe that a little more respect should have been shown to this man I'm about to introduce. Dewey Beard was the name he'd take later in life, but he was just a teenager when he mounted a pony and rode out to meet Custer's soldiers. Doing his duty, as he was trained to do, just like the aforementioned survivor of the 7th. Dewey's participation in the battle was brief, only loosening one arrow, but his aim was accurate. He counted coup on that nameless soldier and took his bugle and a horse as a trophy. The bugle he'd carry for the rest of his life and the horse would take him to Canada, where he, along with many other Lakota, would flee with Sitting Bull. By the way, he obviously wasn't using the name Dewey Beard during the Battle of the Greasy Grass. Not sure what name he was going by at that time, nor am I sure what his birth name was, but as early as the year 1880, he was known as Many Wounded Holes. That alone should indicate his experience in various battles. By 1886, he would answer to the name of Whiskers, and still later, Putinin, which is Lakota for hair on the upper lip. And my apologies, I probably horribly butchered that pronunciation. Now, with a name like hair on the upper lip and taking translation issues into account, it's no small wonder that his name soon turned to Beard on early ration rolls, and I guess it kind of stuck. As such, when the warrior finally became a member of the Presbyterian Church, he kept Beard as his surname and chose Dewey as his given. Nonetheless, he would formally refer to himself in most of his adult life as Wasu Maza, Iron Hell. And it was a long life. Believe it or not, Dewey Beard lived all the way until November 2nd of 1955. Alright, Sugar Ray Robinson was already a boxing champion. Gunsmoke and the Honeymooners were on TV. Johnny Carson was on TV. And there was still a man alive, barely, who fought in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Like I said, Dewey, a nephew of Crazy Horse, by the way, would join Sitting Bull in Canada, but eventually return to the United States where he'd settle down on a reservation in South Dakota. And like most of his people, he somewhat attempted to assimilate, although he never would learn English. Dewey married, learned how to till the soil, even moved into a house, a real house, like a white man. But unfortunately, the 7th Cavalry came calling once again, this time on a creek called Wounded Knee, and yet again, it was a massacre. A bitterly cold day in late December, 1890. Crazy Horse was dead. Sitting Bull was dead. The buffalo were all gone. Still, though, hope is a hard thing to kill, and there was hope remaining among the Lakota, fleeting though it was. The ghost dance religion had been sweeping across the plains like a wildfire. A northern Paiute by the name of Wavoka said that the buffalo would soon return, that all the dead Indians would come back to life, and what's more, the Wasichu would disappear. As you can imagine, this made the white folks a little nervous. They didn't know the difference between a ghost dance and a scalp dance, and they figured it was just a matter of time till the Sioux took to the warpath. During all this uneasiness, a Minikanju chief, Spotted Elk, was leading 350 of his kinsmen from the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation to the Pine Ridge Agency, over 200 miles to the south. And they almost made it, too. They were just about 20 or 30 miles shy of their destination when they were overtook by a detachment of the 7th Cavalry under Colonel James Forsyth. He had orders to confiscate all weapons and escort the band to a military prison at Fort Omaha, Nebraska. Why? Well, even though Spotted Elk himself did not participate in any ghost dances, many of his band did. 
This got them listed as hostiles by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and you can't have hostiles just walking around where they please all willy-nilly, especially not with no firearms. Now, Spotted Elk, also known as Bigfoot to the Whites, didn't want any trouble for his people. He informed the Colonel Scouts that he would surrender without resistance, but alas, things wouldn't go so smoothly. To this day, nobody knows for sure who shot first. The cavalry, who, by the way, were rumored to smell strongly of liquor, came upon the Lakota at daybreak, trying to take their weapons. Both sides were all kinds of tense, and when one particular man named Black Coyote, who was deaf, by the way, was slow in giving over his rifle, a shot broke out. Suddenly, more rifles, previously concealed under blankets, were flung into action as the Lakota and the soldiers started trading fire. A matter of spontaneous combustion sparked by mutual distrust, as one military man would later put it. And Dewey Beard, in his 30s by this point, was right there with him. Armed with nothing but a knife when the shots first rang out, Dewey sank it into the chest and kidneys of an enlisted man. Taking the dead soldier's rifle, Beard ran towards the ravine where the women and children had fled, hoping to find his family. As he did so, a bullet ripped into his right arm as soldiers began rising up on both sides, rifles belching death. He came face to face with one and got off the first shot and watched the soldier fall to the ground and start kicking his legs wildly. Moments later, a second bullet found Dewey, catching him just above the left knee. Staggered, but still standing, Dewey reloaded his weapon and began returning fire at the soldiers until the gun jammed. Tossing it aside, it was soon replaced by another service rifle, but by this point, Dewey could hardly move. At one point, he collapsed to his back and saw a group of children running along a cut bank with soldiers on both sides shooting into him. A Lakota with his jaw shot off emerged and gave Beard a fresh cartridge belt at the same time his stepmother appeared. She was covered in blood, clutching a pistol in one hand as she urged Dewey to pass her by, to keep going and save himself. He watched as she lost strength and fell, her intestines spilling out into the snow. And choking down his rage, Dewey once again began firing his rifle towards the soldiers, as best as he could with that busted right arm. Finally, he was able to push through, taking the low ground to avoid the deadly Hotchkiss guns. Dewey continued up a ravine in search of his wife and one-month-old son. Seeing a group of women and children pinned down by the soldiers, Beard once again took aim and drilled one of the blue coats straight through. Struggling through the pain, he wounded another, and hearing a sound behind him, he turned and shot yet another out of the saddle before trading shots with a fellow Indian, a scout working with the cavalry. It was about as close to hell on earth as you can imagine. The snow red with blood, dead women and children scattered everywhere, wounded crying out in horror and pain. And when Dewey did find his wife, she was dead, and by that time so were his two brothers, his father, and his stepmother, who I already mentioned, and so were over 150 other Lakota. His little baby was still alive, but would die three months later. Story goes that the infant swallowed blood as he tried suckling on his dead mother there in the ravine, and was sick from that day until his death. And I said 150 Lakota were dead. Uh, modern scholars estimate that between 250 and 300 Lakota were killed all total. So you're looking at 100, if not 150 women and children dead, at least. And they were all buried there in a mass grave. 65 years after the fact, while being interviewed by National Geographic, Dewey put it as simply as he could. They murdered us. Dewey Beard was the survivor, though. That much is a given, right? And following the massacre there at Wounded Knee, Dewey kept on surviving. He got married again that following year to his dead wife's sister, a lady named Chief Woman. And together they would settle on the Pine Ridge Reservation where they'd have several children. 
Skip ahead a few years and Beard was recruited by Buffalo Bill Cody to tour in his famous Wild West show. The tour that, in the year 1895, took Dewey to exotic locales such as Bangor, Maine and Montgomery, Alabama. All in all, they performed 321 times over the course of 200 days in 19 states. All of this for room and board and $25 a month, or roughly $860 in today's money. And at the end of the tour, a suit of clothes from Cody himself. We don't know if this was Dewey's only tour with the Wild West Show or not. Uh, following his death, he was described by his wife as a showman. And another relative would tell of a different show that Beard wrote in as a much older man, but I could not find information on it. What we do know for sure is that Dewey would definitely have more dealings with Buffalo Bill. In the year 1914, Cody produced a motion picture, a bio-documentary called The Indian Wars that, very heartlessly in my opinion, depicted the massacre of Wounded Knee right there at the actual site of the massacre. And Dewey acted in it, as did other survivors. They were paid, yet the reenactment opened up old wounds, as you can imagine. To this day, we can only speculate as why Dewey and the others would join in with this reenactment, but it was probably for the money, or as some think, to attempt to set the record straight or try, futile though it was, to show what really happened on that day. Meanwhile, back at Pine Ridge, Dewey was making one hell of a go at it on his own spread, despite suffering badly from old war injuries that, at times, made it hard to even walk. By the start of World War I, the Beard family had cultivated three acres worth of potatoes, owned ten horses, two cows, and a wagon. Nearby spring gave them fresh water, and they even put up a few miles of fence around the place. Soon to come was a sod barn, a roost of a dozen chickens, and by the year 1925, Beard's horse herd had grown to 300 head. Goes without saying that Dewey was one hell of a horseman. Even as an older man, injuries and all, he was said to have been able to go from standing flat-footed in moccasins and jump up on a pony's back. And he was also somewhat of a horse whisperer, being able to simply talk astray back into the corral. And as hard as this is to believe, as a younger man, he was fast enough to beat a horse in a hundred-yard dash. I know, sounds unbelievable, but evidently this was a common spectacle during Cody's Wild West shows, and it was something that was seen by hundreds of thousands of people. As Beard grew older, he began making trips to Washington, D.C. with an interpreter, of course testify before Congress and pester politicians in hopes that he and other survivors of Wounded Knee would receive some sort of compensation. In one talk before Congress in 1938, he said in part, quote, The United States has done what we call one of the biggest murders. They must be ashamed of it or something because they never offered to reimburse us or settle in any way. And speaking of the many Lakota youth who volunteered to fight in the First World War, Dewey said, quote, They helped to defend our country gave up their lives and fought for this government, which, some 47 years ago, shot down their helpless, unarmed grandfathers and grandmothers at Wounded Knee. And we will talk more about Lakota patriotism in a moment. For now, though, the Army wasn't quite done with Dewey Beard. And when it became apparent that the United States would soon plunge themselves into World War II, the military needed some land to be used for gunnery ranges for aerial target practice. Now, clearly, this wasn't something they could do in downtown Detroit or some suburb of Chicago. The Department of Defense had to find a sparsely populated area, ideally in the arid or semi-arid portions of the United States where few people lived and where, due to poor soil, it was hard to grow crops. Imagine the irony that most of the land that fit this bill was reservation land. The government literally stuffed these people onto the most unwanted and unusable land they could find and still found a reason to come back and take it from them later on. 
Now, it wasn't just the Lakota. There were other tribes that had their land taken at the same time as well for the same purposes, either for aerial target practice or POW camps or landing strips or what have you. But it was Pine Ridge where Dewey lived that was hit the hardest. All total, they had 340,000 acres seized from them, with little to no compensation, and given just 10 days to vacate the properties before the bombing started. 10 days. Dewey Beer was in his 80s at this time and found himself pretty much hopeless. Landowners who had their properties taken were offered a quote-unquote fair market value, but of course it did not reflect the low price of land during the Great Depression, nor did it take into account the effect the war would have on rising agricultural prices. Improvements on land were low-balled and all moving expenses were denied. All total, Dewey received a little over 3000 for his property, but even that was paid out in installments. And to add insult to injury, much of this stolen land wasn't even used for bombing practice or anything else war-related. The government simply leased the land at profit to local off-the-reservation ranchers so they could run cattle. And if any Lakota wanted to use the land, they'd be forced to pay grazing fees. They never did recover, said one Lakota man of the families forced off their land. And according to a 1951 study, 80% of those dislocated in 1942 had become downwardly mobile, with little or no land and less income than they had a decade prior. And our Dewey Beard was one of them. He and his wife moved in with son Tom for a little bit, thinking that maybe his land would be returned to him, but in the end, he became a bit of a nomad, just as he had been as a young man. They go from one family member's house to another, uh, oftentimes living in tents or shanty homes. Never again for the rest of his life would Dewey own his own property, or have a house to call his own. By the way, I mentioned patriotism earlier, and despite constantly being screwed over by the U.S. government, the Lakota continued to be a patriotic people. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. When Uncle Sam came calling, this warrior society unquestionably sent their sons, the way they had for centuries. In 1943, on the Pine Ridge Reservation alone, there were 1,500 Oglalas serving out of a population of just 10,000 people. Even Dewey Beard did his part. He somehow scraped together enough money to buy war bonds in the 40s in order to support the war effort. And later, when a young relative was headed to fight in Korea and came to the old warrior for advice, Dewey told him, quote, Be brave. Don't be scared. Don't even be scared a little. Those that are scared and run are the first ones to get shot. Always try to be up front and pray a lot. Pray when you get up and Pray all during the day. Luckily, Dewey was able to supplement his meager allowance enough to at least keep he and his wife from starving. And this was done partly by being exploited even further. Having pictures taken with tourists and little kids as they gawked at him and tried to poke at him. The last survivor of the little bighorn. And he even made a few more cameos in the movies. They were all bit parts in films like Tomahawk and The Battles of Chief Pontiac and The Last Hunt. The pay wasn't worth a damn, but at least Dewey wouldn't starve. I guess that's something. It at least afforded him the one-room tar paper shack where he was living when he finally passed away on November 2nd, 1955. Now your guess is as good as mine as to Dewey's actual age at the time of his death. I don't think anybody knows for sure just when Beard was born. Uh, one direct descendant claimed 1856. On several census records, his birth year is recorded as 1862. Dewey himself told a reporter in 1907 that he was 43 years old, which would have made his birth year 1864. 
1955, during one of his speeches before Congress, he claimed he was 97 years old, which would have meant he was born in 1858. Either way you cut it, the man was somewhere around 90 years old and lived one hell of a life. Born on the prairie to a proud and free people, learning how to ride and hunt and make war, living off the fat of the land, and experiencing so much history, much of it tragic. And despite being written up in several magazines and newspapers when Dewey was buried there at Pine Ridge, in the St. Stephen's Catholic Cemetery, it was an unmarked grave. There's a marker there now, thankfully, but from what I can tell, as recently as 2012, his final resting place went without a headstone. Nobody played taps at his funeral, nor were there any military honors or grand parades. The far cry from the send-off and accolades afforded the survivor of the 7th Cavalry that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. But I suppose that's to be expected. After all, Dewey was the opposition, right? The enemy, both in 1876 and 1890. And by his own admission, he spilled his fair share of army blood. But still, you'd think a man would get a little bit more recognition than a horse. Yes, a horse. A bay gelding, to be exact. That survivor of the 7th Cavalry, the one wounded so grievously a little big horn, and the one that was so honored and paraded and all that. His name was Comanche, a personal mount of Captain Miles Keogh. Now don't get me wrong, I fully understand the fondness that the soldiers felt towards old Comanche, especially considering the great loss they had just suffered on the battlefield. I just find it ironic and a bit telling that a horse was treated so much better than an actual man. I mean, let's be honest, had the horseshoe, <laughs> get it, been on the other foot, had the man living on the land that the military wanted to use for bombing practice been a 90-something-year-old former U.S. cavalryman, a veteran of the Indian Wars, would they have still gone through with it? Would they have evicted such a person off his land with just 10 days' notice? I think you know the answer. I mean, the public outcry alone would have been deafening. I know I'll get a little bit of pushback on this episode, and I can already hear the arguments now. But Josh, they stole that land from other tribes. But Josh, they did bad things too. But Josh, they got the casinos. Look, here's the thing. There's no other people in this great country of ours that are as marginalized as the Native Americans. And that's the damn truth, whatever way you want to cut it. I can sit here all day and rattle off statistics. Aside from that, though, I should think we would all agree that you shouldn't kick an elderly man off his property with just a few days' notice, and effectively leave him homeless. But here's the thing that I don't really understand, and here's my question. You know, we defeated the Nazis back in 1945, and they proceeded to pour billions of dollars into Western Europe, helping to build them back up. Germany today is a thriving nation, and it has been for decades. Likewise with Japan, we dropped the damn atomic bombs on them, and they gave them $2.2 billion between 1946 and 1952, equal to $21 in today's money. And just like Germany, Japan is now a mature democracy with one of the largest economies in the world. So why the hell couldn't we have done something similar with the Native Americans? The war in Europe was barely over before we started pouring in money, yet men like Dewey Beard, men who lost their entire families and had their homes taken, lived their entire lives having to fight for every damn penny they got. And yes, even today, the Lakota continue to fight for reimbursement that they feel that they are owed. I mean, we just sent $40 billion in aid to the Ukraine. Don't get me wrong, God bless them, but what about the people here at home who are suffering? Don't get me started on the $8 trillion that we spent on the 20-year war on terror. $8 trillion. 
I can't even fathom that amount of money, but I gotta wonder if it wouldn't have been better spent here, helping people stuck in poverty, helping people get off the street to kick addiction, to get an education, to better themselves. People like the Lakota, or the Navajo, or the Cherokee, or insert whatever tribe your grandma claimed to be a princess in. And will this aid ever come? I'm not holding my breath. And if it does, you can be sure that some politician will get their cut first. I don't know what the solution is, the fair solution, the responsible, realistic solution. I don't have any answers. I just think more should have been done and more should be done for these people. We're all Americans now. And since the days of Little Bighorn, the indigenous have more than proved their loyalty to this nation through service and blood. Now, Dewey had a song he'd sing on occasion, a death chant. It was short and sweet, and it went as follows. Ogallala people. Tell about me in a good way. I am a warrior. This, from what I've read, would be followed by two loud yips. And when Dewey did finally pass away, he did so in his sleep, so I'm not sure if he was able to get out this death song beforehand. I'm just glad I got a chance to learn about him, and now we can remember him and tell about him in a good way. That he was a warrior. Now, I'll be honest, I wasn't planning on doing this episode this week. I'm actually working on a Joaquin Murrieta episode but I needed a little more time. I'd been thinking about this story of Dewey Beard for a while, but I just couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to try to say here. And I still don't know what I'm trying to say. Nothing, I guess, other than here was a man, he existed, and his story, unfortunately, isn't all that rare, at least as far as the suffering went. Many of his people suffered just as Dewey did. And many of them continue to suffer and continue to fight for some sort of reimbursement. That's part of history. You know, human history is very messy, and sometimes these stories don't have a happy ending. On that note, uh, you can visit Comanche the Horse if you're of a mind to. His remains were sent to the University of Kansas to be preserved, and his taxidermy mount is still on display to this day at the university's Natural History Museum. Alright, like I said, the next episode will be on the California bandit Joaquin Murrieta. If you're not familiar, Joaquin was a Mexican-American outlaw that some consider to be the inspiration behind Zorro and possibly even Batman. This is a highly requested episode and I can't wait to get it out to you. I just need a little more time. Till then, if you haven't already, please check out my last episode on Joseph Antrim, brother of Billy the Kid. That episode, a short one, is titled Brothers McCarty. And if you're itching for some more Native American stories, please check out the episode I did on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War a while back. Link to both of these episodes in the show notes. If you'd like to yell at me for sometimes using naughty words or tell me that I pronounced something wrong, you can go on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button or email me directly at josh at wildwestextra.com. While you're there at wildwestextra.com, click on that listen tab and find out all the ways you can follow or subscribe to the Wild West Extravaganza for free. And please check out the book, The Song Dewey Beard. I relied heavily on it for this episode, and I barely scratched the surface. Lots of good info on old Iron Hell, lots of eyewitness recollections, and a whole lot of insights into life up there at Pine Ridge. Great book. Once again, that's The Song of Dewey Beard, written by Philip Burnham. Link in this episode's show notes. Big thanks to those of you who financially support the Wild West extravaganza, whether it be through Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee. Shout out to my newest patrons, James and Vicky. Shout out to my latest coffee contributors, Vicky again, Timothy and R. David. Y'all are awesome. 
Uh, speaking of money, I don't always mention it on this podcast, but 20% of my earnings via Patreon go to charity. What I usually do is let it build up for two or three months first. I think my last donation was in May when we gave to the Kidney Cancer Association. Well, it's that time again, and this round we are donating to the Native American Heritage Association, 501c3 organization dedicated to helping Native Americans living on tribal reservations in South Dakota through medical, food, clothing, and fuel programs. Thanks again to all my patrons. Our donations are never huge, but at least we're doing something, and I couldn't do it without you. By the way, when I do this, I use a website called Charity Navigator. And uh, they rate all the various groups as far as transparency and all that goes. So I only give to the highly rated organizations. That way we know where our money is actually going, you know, to the people in need. Okay, finally, I want to start doing something new. I know I get a little silly on this podcast at times, but on episodes like this, when talking about shit like the massacre at Wounded Knee, it's kind of hard to fit in a dick joke. Some of these topics can be a little heavy, so I figured I'd offer up a bit of a palate cleanser. Starting with this episode, I'm going to start sharing something that will hopefully bring a smile to your face. And this week, that something is another podcast called Can You Don't. It's brand spanking new, only one episode out so far, but you're definitely going to urinate yourself with laughter. Can You Don't is a weekly comedic podcast where hosts Joe Paisley and Brian Albrandt delve into the depths of the internet in order to retrieve the best and worst examples of humanity, while openly mocking themselves along the way for being complete idiots. Link in the damn show notes. Don't forget to join me in a fortnight to discuss all things Joaquin Murrieta. Whatever happened to his head? Is there any buried treasure? How many times will I accidentally call him Joaquin Phoenix? Only one way to find out. Till then, adios. Adios.